Oh, Rachel. Psalm 138. Psalm 138. Well, good evening, everyone. Thankful to be here with you tonight. And let's just get into the text this evening. If you would stand and do honor to the reading of God's Word as we begin in Psalm 138, a psalm of David. David, writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God. I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called to you, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, You preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill His his purposes for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. This is God's Word to you and I, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence acknowledging the reality that we Far too often, take your words lightly and your promises lightly. Father, would you write these words on all of our hearts? Would you encourage us and stir us in our worship for you? Father, might we behold glorious things in this text tonight. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's interesting that um, last week we were with the psalmist in Psalm 137, and because he was... Uh, among the enemies of God and merely being ta- told to, to sing a song of Zion in a way that would please human flesh, he, he said, no, I can't worship. But in Psalm 138, the time has come not only when such praises are sung, but also the writer anticipates not only will, will the people of God sing, but all of creation will sing praises to God. Part of what we learn in this psalm is that we are called to a bold form of worship. That we are called to worship and praise Him even when the society might say that that is out of place. We become bold when we are faced with the opposition of a lost and dying world telling us not to worship, uh, not to focus on God in all that we do, both as we gather and as we are scattered. But, but the bold life that is laid out here in the text tonight is one in which we worship in the face of princes and kings who yet do not know God. This is a worship psalm, and 
Um, one of the key themes that is dominant throughout all of the Psalms that deal with the worship of God is the idea of thanksgiving. Uh, the idea that we come and we give thanks to God for who He truly is, praising Him for all that He has done. And we talked about on Sunday morning, the anecdote to idolatry are the attributes, the characteristics of God Himself. But we're reminded here that not only do we worship God for all of His attributes, but we also worship God for all that He has done. We're reminded that the only way that we can actually know God is to consider the works that He has accomplished on our behalf. Uh, and namely, those accomplishments are recorded in His Word. He reveals Himself to us, and this is how we come to know and rightly worship Him. Now, briefly, before we move on, there are kind of two puzzling um, components to this psalm that, that I want to just acknowledge. One is uh, the, uh, the treatment here of what is written in verse 1. I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. The, the word used here is Elohim, and it's used in the plural sense. And so there is this question, what is meant here? And, and we do need to understand that when we come to the Bible, the word Elohim is used in its plural sense even in the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God, Elohim, plural, created the heavens and the earth. Now, one of the glories of that first verse and what we understand is that our Bible is Trinitarian from the very first verse. Isn't that a joy? That, that God is declaring His character in His Trinity from the very beginning. But here in particular, the psalmist having said before the gods, plural, I sing your praise. And there are many ideas of what is really meant here by the plural usage of Elohim. One idea is that before God means before the ark of God. That, that is, I will come and praise you in the sanctuary. Um, this doesn't seem to carry a lot of weight. Another is before uh, God means before the... Uh, sorry. No. Uh, that doesn't carry weight because um, he ultimately also says that he will bow down toward the temple. Martin Luther, John Calvin thought that the word here refers to angels in a sense. And um, that word is translated in the Old Testament several times in that particular context. I'm not going to get into all of the detail there, but that is an, uh, a possibility. Um, the other possibility is that Elohim refers uh, to judges or kings or rulers. And I think actually that's probably what is being dealt with here. And I'll explain that in a minute. Uh, but the final po possibility is that Elohim refers to the idols or false gods of all of the nations. He's saying uh, the, the, the understanding of this text would be if, if he's talking about idols here that what David is writing into the psalm is I will praise you, O God, in spite of all of the other idols. And, and really, I think what we have to level with 
in all of the different possibilities of what is meant here uh, about I will praise you with my whole heart before the gods, I sing your praise, we have to reckon with the fact that we really don't know. And there's really not a major distinction um, with any of these particular interpretation. Uh, But I do think that it's probable that what is being dealt with here is that the, the gods mean the other kings, judges, those who are powerful in the earth. Because if we think about the background of this psalm, it is probably set at a time, uh, at the time of 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, where God has made a covenant. I will make your name with David. I will make your name great, uh, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And so David here is saying, before all of the other um, kings of the earth, because you have promised to establish my dynasty, my kingdom. Uh, I will praise your name. Uh, Also, David mentions kings explicitly in verse 4. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks. And so, juxtaposed to verse 1, it it seems to carry some weight that what David is talking about here is that in the face of of atheistic uh, princes and kings, He will worship the living God. That He's not going to have one political front and another for His worship. That He's going to be the same consistently in His worship. The other difficulty, and I don't think that it's here in the ESV as as clearly, but depending upon your translation, um, in verse 2, there is this literal rendering that you, O Lord, have magnified your word above your name. And that seems kind of strange because God's name is preeminent in all things. God Himself and His person and His name is part of His person uh, is ultimately above all things. So referring to something that God has done, namely His word, as being above Everything, including himself, seems to be counterintuitive to what we would believe about the living God and about Scripture. How can God's Word be exalted above himself? How is it that his Word is understood to be uh, lifted high in that sense? Well, really, uh, to make it succinct, what I think... um, What I think is being said here isn't necessarily that the Bible is exalted above any other attribute, character, person uh, of who the Lord is, any other aspect of His being. Rather, what is really being dealt with here is that God would be received as one who keeps His Word. That the, what, what God is saying in verse 2, you, uh, I, I bow down toward your holy name, your holy temple rather, and I give you thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And part of what I, I think that's a, a good rendering of the text and what is being communicated in that particular uh, expression 
is that God wants us to take Him at His word. He wants us to know that as sure as all of His attributes and and even His namesake, He will keep His word. There is something, I think, in our culture, regardless of what background you come from, that if you want to keep your name, your reputation, your renown, boy, that sun is right in my eye. Um, If you want to keep your reputation, you will endeavor to be an individual that keeps your word. And that's what... what, um, God is saying here in the second verse, he, he, he wants us to be reminded that He is a God who keeps His Word. And I think, in fact, we have to understand in the near proximity of David being the human author and the reality of Second Samuel chapter 7 being here in the penumbra of Psalm 138, um, we have to take into consideration that, that David is responding to, he's writing in light of this promise that God has given And David uh, responds to that promise in verses 20 and 21 of 2 Samuel chapter 7 with these words. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and have made it known to your servant. So again, the explanation of verse 2 is that David wants us to understand that if God has promised that He's going to do something, He is, in fact, going to do it. There's a whole conversation to be had here about kingdoms and dynasties and how throughout the biblical record we see the people of Israel, uh, the nation, uh, pursuing their own leadership and how that goes. And then the reality that when the nation rests under the sovereignty of God and receives the king that he has appointed, David, how ultimately not only is the nation of Israel blessed under his leadership, but all of the earth and down to you and I even today. So those are the problems that we have to deal with in this psalm. But here is uh, what I want to do. I want us to move on and ask questions of this text. What is David praising God for in these verses? What what is it that he's coming to give thanks for? And the response, the the, the reason, uh, is for his steadfast love, his hesed binding love, and his faithfulness. For his covenantal love towards his people for the the kind of love that is not conditioned upon the object of the love but is conditioned upon the one who grants that steadfast love aren't you thankful that you know this evening that God loves you in spite of you and that God has received you not because of your profession of faith not because of your works but because of who he is in his character And He will never leave us or forsake us as His people. Now, David wants wants all of the nations to marvel at... Listen, the idols throughout all of human history have been these petulant gods who just need to be placated. Uh, I was listening to um, exposition of Leviticus chapter 20 and 21... Uh, recently, and the individual that was walking through those passages, which are really weighty, kind of difficult passages to, to, to truck through, 
uh, kind of pointed out the reality of all over the globe how archaeologists continue to find horrific uh, archaeological discoveries of, um, well, of the skeletal remains of children that have been sacrificed to some petulant tribal god. Uh, it's not uncommon for uh, you to find in these archaeological digs that an entire society would be okay with, um, and, and part of what is in the background here of the human psyche is that we're constant, we were created to worship, and so in that impulse to worship, we realize that we are not righteous and that, we de- that there is a, a, a demand for an innocent sacrifice. But when we set about to enact that sacrifice on our own, it's a disaster. And archaeology proves this out. You'll find uh, in various places around the globe, skeletal remains of children. Because if we're going to sacrifice innocence, it's got to be a child in our own human understanding. And, And you'll find skeletal remains that the child's femurs have been broken. So that when they are sacrificed alive in the fire, they can't crawl out. I mean, awful, barbaric um, practices. And and I I want us to have the weight. Uh, Remember, if you've forgotten, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You're never going to forget that. Um, and, And the weightiness of of idolatry gone wrong is a costly, ugly thing. And juxtaposed is what David is writing about here. And that is that he wants the nations to know his God. He wants the nations to be aware of the covenant love of God. And it's interesting, he wants them to know that because the covenant love of God has always been under attack. It's always been controversial. It's always been something that man, outside of the regenerating work of the Spirit of God and the lives of His people, it is something that man will reject. And man rejects the covenant love of God because, well, we want to be praised. We want our works. We want our goodness. We want our merit to speak for us. The problem is, That our works are as filthy rags and we have no merit. Uh, We have no reason for God to set His love upon us. And yet, that is exactly what David praises God for here. God's declared His steadfast love towards His people even from Genesis 3. He, He has never wavered in His purpose To love the people that He set about to love before the foundation of the world. God's love predates all of His recorded Word. And it is is right at that point that we constantly find Satan and a lost world attacking the character of God. Satan, in, in the garden, tempts Eve by attacking the goodness of God. Did God really say that you must not eat of the tree uh, here in the garden? If God has really forbidden you to do this, it must be because He's not good. 
And then Satan goes on to aim at drawing us away from the Word of God by suggesting you will not surely die. God's words are not true. Uh, I think it's all the more important for us to understand verse 2 and that God, His Word is synonymous with His name and that when He speaks, you can't really divide in some sense, and I'm not talking about being idolatrous of written words, but you can't divide the words that emanate from God because when God speaks, things happen. Uh, When we speak, I can say... Let the, I can say I, that sun needs to be blotted out for a second. Nothing's going to happen. But if God says, let the sun no longer shine, we're going to have a problem on our hands. God's words are true. And Satan always wants to divide us from the words of God. He wants to undermine what God is doing. He wants to accuse God of being a liar. But we know that Satan is the one who is really the liar. You see, David had learned that God does not lie and that all, that God's, that all of God's thoughts and His actions Uh, toward us flow from a reality not of being begrudging. Our God is not like the idols who need to be placated. Our God needs nothing from you and I. Everything that flows from God towards you and I, do you know where it emanates from? From His steadfast love and His faithfulness. And that's an encouragement. And that is what David is being bold about here. God is good. He always has been good. He always will be good. And we must praise Him accordingly. David also praises God for providing what is needed, when it is needed, and how it is needed. He is constantly coming to the point of praising God for who God is. And again, part of what I told you earlier is that the tempo of this psalm, although it's not explicit, is bold worship. And I think when we come to Psalm 138, and we have been about the Psalter for a while now, and we wonder through all of the trials and tragedies and difficulties and national calamities and all of the things that David writes about in his own life, you could put a question mark above the purposes of God and say, what in the world is God up to in all of this? If David is really the king that he has chosen, why doesn't he just give him a kingdom that's flourishing, that has no problems, that has no uh, enemies, that has no uh, struggles with idolatry, that has no uh, fight against sin? And the answer is found in this psalm. What God is up to is He's making people who will be eternally bold worshipers of the living God. Not people who are flippant and half-hearted and who struggle to just critique in worship, but people who are face down acknowledging the realities of God's steadfast love and His faithfulness and individuals who seek to praise God for what He has done and who He is. I think the time just got called out. That was helpful. So what is the desire of this bold 
man. Verses 4 and 5 are describing uh, the, the coming day of messianic blessing when the promised king will come to rule on the throne forever. All the kings of the earth shall give thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. David is himself a king, and he is concerned for kings, and he looks forward to a day when all of the rulers of the earth will bow down, when all of the the, the, the leaders of this world, who are many of them taken into idolatry, will bow to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It, it hearkens to what uh, Paul has given us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, that, that at, the, uh, at the name of Jesus, every bow... Uh, I'm going to pause for a second. That the name... The name that is above every name... That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this psalm, what we see is that David is noting the reality, the result of the Messiah's coming. And the, 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 the reality of His coming is that all of the kings of the earth will bow down and worship and give God glory. And it's interesting because here, this is not so much a case of David declaring what God has done or a prophecy of what he will do, but rather it is a prayer, a desire of David's heart that the kings of the earth might thank God and might praise Him for all that He has done. Part of what we see in this particular uh, verses 4 and 5 is here is a king among kings. Here is the king that God has chosen for His people uh, at this particular time in history and He is among all of the other kings and His desire for them above every other desire and we've heard the imprecatory uh, aspects of David's heart and, and we've, we've experienced how, how David cries out and lament about the sins of the nation and all of the other things in the, in the Psalter. But here we find in, in verses 4 and 5 a missional impulse from the heart of David. He longs for a day and he knows that it's coming when all of the rulers of the world will bow down and they will worship God. It is a bold uh, confession. It is a bold desire. It is a bold uh, reality of leaning into the steadfast love and faithfulness and knowing that God is going to bring about His perfect plan of redemption and God is going to establish His kingdom forever in a way that will bring Him glory. And what David really acknowledges before us is what we find in Matthew 28 and in so many other aspects of the Bible, and that is between the already of our conversion and the not yet of the consummation of being in glory with Christ, it is our job to flood the earth with His Word and to be about the work of mission. And, and that doesn't take getting a missionary degree from some institution. It takes being a Bible-believing, spirit-indwelt Christian. And wherever you go, if it's to a ball game, if it's to work, if it's to the bridge club, wherever it is, that you are an individual that takes the glory of Christ with you and proclaims His Word in such a way 
that a lost and dying world knows, if nothing else, you believe that God is true to His Word as much to His character, and He is, in fact, going to do everything He says He will do. Now, it's interesting that we've fallen into this missional rut. Uh, that, and I don't know that I have good answers, and this isn't in my notes, so it's for what it's worth. Uh, we've fallen into this rut that God only is on mission after we get into the New Testament. That's nonsense. God has been on mission before the foundation of the world, before He whispered everything that is into existence by divine fiat. God knew He was up to redeeming a people for His glory. There is this kind of impulse for us to believe that God created the world perfect with Adam and Eve in perfect righteousness and, and, and with an inclination to glorify and worship Him and then Satan came in and messed everything up. And God went, well, uh uh-oh, I guess I'm going to have to call an audible here. And everything from Genesis chapter 3 onward is God just trying to pick up the pieces and fix things that He didn't know would be broken. But friends, can I tell you tonight that God has been on mission from the, the conception of the universe and He is bringing to pass everything that He has intended and He is redeeming every person that He has intended to redeem and He will get the glory. And missions does not start in Matthew 28. It starts before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Boy, I'm glad I got that off my chest. I do feel better. We should look for mission all throughout the Word of God. And missions cannot be boiled down to putting money in a plate so that we can send somebody across the globe. Missions has to be every impulse of our lives. Missions has to be a way in which we live believing and proclaiming and not just with words but but, but with the disposition of our heart and our being that we want the entire world around us to understand that our God's love is covenantal, steadfast, and He is faithful. It's pretty bold, isn't it? But that's the heart of this bold man. Well, in the last stanza this psalm, of, of this psalm, David comes back to his own needs. For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, You preserve my life. You stretch out Your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and Your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. He knows that God is great, that He has compassion for the lowly, disdain for those who exalt themselves and who are haughty in their own eyes, who are using, and beloved, I see this in ministry all over the place, who use the church of God to gain a position for themselves, and they are not seeking to bring glory to the Lord's name. And David knows that those people will find the judgment of God. He knows that God preserves his life, that he stretches out his hand against his enemies, and that he saves those whom He will, in verse 7. So David acknowledges here that he walks in the midst of trouble and that he would not survive, that he would not be able to praise God, that he would not be able to do the work that God had given him to do as king 
And we can take that in our own spiritual understanding, in our walk with the Lord, that we wouldn't be able to live the life that God has called us to if God Himself were not the one doing the work. Do we have works to walk in? Yes. But we always understand that, understand that behind our works are the redemptive works of God in our lives. And so he cries out here, do not forsake the work of your hands. David had a profound understanding of the sovereignty of God. David understood that there was going to be nothing accomplished without the kindness of God. Without God continuing to work boldly in his heart and in his life. The, the most important line in the stanza is in the first line of verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his promise for me. This is the Old Testament version of Paul's writing to the church at Philippi in chapter 1 verse 6 which assures us that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. How can we be confident and assured tonight that God is going to redeem us because His redemption of His people is not based on their prayer, on their merits, on their altar calls, on their bake sales, on their potlucks, on any of those things. The the works of God are determined by the eternal counsel of God. And that means that they will come to pass and that God will be revealed as faithful to all He has intended to do. In Psalm 138, David was probably thinking of God's purpose in sending the Messiah to reign on the throne. David was thinking about the coming of the Messiah. But we must think in terms of God's purpose concerning us. And I think there's no greater place to turn than Romans chapter 8. We know that all, in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be called the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. This is known throughout the more recent church history from the Puritans onward. And I don't know, but it may have been William Perkins who, were the, who was the first one to, to coin the phrase the golden chain of salvation that's found here in Romans chapter 8. For those He foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He glorified. That is, the steadfast love of the Lord is up to every ounce of our salvation beginning to end. Top to bottom. It's all His work. He loves us because He loves us. Well, why? I don't know. For His glory, I can't give you the reason that God has set His love upon me. What I can promise you is this. That if He has set His love upon you, His purpose is that you would be an individual like David, desiring to tell the whole world about His steadfast love, about His binding love, and His faithfulness. 
We're not saved into a vacuum where we never speak about God. We're, we're not saved in a mechanical way. We're saved by the Spirit of the living God such that we burn with a passion that people would know the living God. Talking about the golden chain of salvation, I don't know if uh, you've had an opportunity. This is totally a side note. I normally wouldn't do this, but it's one of my favorite. We live in the land of memes in our day and age. The little things on the internet that communicate succinct truth and there's a Christian song that that he is a that God's a chain breaker and the chorus that is repeated a million times before you get to the end of the song and you just want you get exhausted with the song is that that he breaks every chain every chain every chain and that the meme that I just love so much is one of R.C. Sproul and he's pointing out at the crowd and he says not every chain because this golden chain of salvation is never broken there is no exception. That there is no individual who God has foreknew. And some people want to tie that to an Americanized, late understanding of, of foreknowledge in a, in a way that God down, looks down the tunnel of time and, and, and He sees people that would choose Him. And then based on their wonderful merit of choosing Him, He chooses them, which is absolute uh, nonsense. It reveals a theological inconsistency and inadequacy in the individual that would espouse that. It also just uh, reveals that you can't read real well uh, because in a biblical, and I mean that in love, but uh, I, the, the arguments don't hold any weight. To foreknow in the Bible, to knowledge in this sense that this is used is to forelove. Those that God has set His love upon, He predestines. And that offends the people that aren't. That's not my problem. Those He predestines, He calls because He never gives up. His faithfulness to His love is enduring. And those He calls, He justifies. And He does it by the blood of His Son. And those He justifies will stand before Him in glory. And they will bow and they will worship Him regardless if they are a king or a queen for who He is and what He has done alone. You see, our assurance never rests upon us. It never rests upon our performance. And if you have been brought up in a Christian system of thinking that says, if you do good things, God will love you, I want you to hear with my most pastoral love and compassion that I can muster tonight, that is a damnable lie of Satan seeking to drag you into despair. Because if your salvation is dependent upon your faithfulness, then, beloved, you're damned. But David wants to tell the whole world that's not the case. Our salvation is dependent upon the steadfast, hesed love of God and His faithful, enduring kindness. So what do we say in light of the reality that apart from the preserving grace of Almighty God, we would all fall away and be damned? Well, we say what David says. We say the Lord will fulfill His, prom- His purposes for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. O God, do not forsake 
the work of your hands. I think it was John Virgin who wrote, listen to these words. His creating hands formed our souls at the beginning. His nail-pierced hands redeemed them on Calvary. His glorified hands will hold our souls fast and not let them go forever. Unto His hands let us commend our spirits, sure that even though the works of our hands have made void the works of His hands, yet His hands will again make perfect all that our hands have unmade. Let's praise God for that in our hearts tonight, beloved. He is faithful. His love is enduring. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you tonight acknowledging the weight of your love. And Father, we come before you tonight with that great reality knowing that your love cannot be separated from your eternality. Your love cannot be separated from your wisdom. Your love cannot be separated uh, from your justice. Your love exudes all of those things. And so when we hear that we are loved in Christ and that you are the faithful one, we can rest knowing that our salvation is sure in Christ. And so Father, would you give us a spirit a bold desire to worship Christ not in a way that is casual, not in a way that is in step with the lost impulses of our society, but let us be worshipers in spirit and in truth, seeking to praise Your name because You loved us from the foundation of the world and You've predestined us and You have called us and You have justified us. And Father, we trust that You will one day bring us to glory. Christ's name. Amen. Many of the Psalms, whether it be a Psalm of Lament, the imprecatory Psalms, the Psalms of Worship, Thanksgiving, Psalms of Ascent.